The Bible tells us that Jesus will return one day in power and in glory. Until then, how should we wait and live? This sermon is a part of a series on the book of 1 Thessalonians called Living at the End of Time. We hope you enjoy today's message. Good morning. Our scripture this morning is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. So please turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those who are approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. You know we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else. Even though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. Instead, we were like young children among you. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Recently, I was asked a couple of interesting questions. Um, somebody asked me, how long does it take you to prepare a sermon? I was trying to think quickly why they were asking that. Maybe they thought you should take more time. I wasn't sure. So my answer was 55 years. Because that's sort of how long I've been working on this. As you know, we started a series last week on 1 Thessalonians. And we've written a study guide that goes along with it. And so it integrates your personal reading during the week, a small group, um, community group, Bible study, and then sharing Sunday morning. And um, I think we're all out for what we've printed, but you can download it from our website uh, on your own paper. I was asked, have all the sermons been written in this series before you write the study guide? That's a good question. The answer to that is no. My uh, primary goal is to encourage you in the study guide to read a passage and study it week by week, think through the questions, perhaps discuss it in your community group. The study guide was written probably about last November, and the sermons that we do Sunday mornings are written kind of week by week. So um, I haven't written the study guide way ahead of time for us. By the way, I'll just let you know, I think next week has a section in it when Paul deals with the Jews, which is one of the most challenging passages in the New Testament and also for our time today. So don't be discouraged by it, but just sort of plug your way through it the best you can. And each week as I was 
write the study guide and as also as I, I come to the pulpit. I'm, I'm always working for, in, every, in a week's passage, first of all, what is biblical? What is the truth of scripture? And secondly, how is that relevant to our lives personally and especially relevant to the life of Central Baptist Church right now? So if you paid attention and caught the reading that was done a few minutes ago, as you know, we have a search committee working to search out a new lead pastor for the church. I'm not involved in that in any way, but it dawned on me working for this passage. If they had received an application from someone called Paul, what would they have done? I think here's what might have happened. His resume would have said, well, Paul, what were you doing before you became a Christian? Well, I persecuted and jailed Christians and then I became a Christian. Oh, thank you. Hmm. What happened then? Well, many of the cities that I used to preach in chased him out of town. He said, when I was in cities, riots took place. I was put in prison. Five times I was flogged. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once he says I was stoned. That actually meant something very different in those days than it does today. They used real rocks and it hurt. Paul says in his resume, I, I was always on the move because I was being chased by bandits. And once I actually had to escape from a city by being lured from a window in a basket. And I, I slipped away without being caught. Would you really want to hire someone like that to be the lead pastor for Central Baptist right now? I have a feeling the search committee would say, next application. Just leave that away. So when the apostle Paul wrote to churches, he often had to establish his apostolic authority. He had to defend his reputation. And that's exactly what he was doing at the beginning of the passage for this week's study, what was read to us. It gives us insight into how he views his task as an apostle and as a pastor. As we work through this this morning, I encourage you to have it open in your Bible, cell phone, whatever you do. The Apostle Paul was perhaps the best theologian the church ever had. As a Jewish rabbi, he was trained under Gamaliel. He had an outstanding mind, a tremendous zeal for his religious heritage. That's why he was such a zealot and assassin in opposing the church. And God, you see, took the best of his spiritual passion and turned it around, focusing it towards the church. But he's much more than a theologian with a great mind. He's a pastor with a great heart. He thinks like a pastor, feels like a pastor. He has a pastor's heart for the churches he started and worked with. He rejoices when they rejoice. He's not afraid to scold them when they need scolded. He encourages them when that was needed. Verse 4. We're not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. You know, we never use flattery, nor did we put a mask on to cover up greed. God is our witness. As is the case with every spiritual leader, Paul knows that Character is primary. In Paul's day, there was a great temptation of money and greed, internal temptation of flattery, self-praise, trying to feed off public praise. So I suggest to you this morning, as you look for a pastor, the same is true today. 
I don't know if the issues and struggles that in the area of sexuality were as important in Paul's day as they are to now. But they certainly are today. You know that. Day after day on television, we hear of those who are in positions of leadership um, over young people in athletics, in soccer, in gymnastics, whatever it is, who are often guilty of sexual abuse. It's tragic. And I will tell you that I wince when I hear the, of a sexual scandal in the life of perhaps some well-known pastor. Because when that happens, every honest, faithful, hardworking pastor somehow wears it. Pastors need to have clean hands and a pure heart. Training and degrees are important. Experience is essential. But character is critical. Someone once said, character is what you are when no one is looking. There's a word that has worked its way into our vocabulary in the last number of years. That word is passion. You find it in all kinds of literature. It used to be a word that maybe you only felt around Valentine's Day. Passion had a kind of romantic meaning. But now you hear the need for passion in our jobs. Executives talk about the need for passion. To engage in work with deep feeling. Skills by themselves are no longer sufficient. What we need is passion for our work. So when Paul writes to the church at Colossae, he says, I want you to know how much I'm struggling for you and for those in Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. The Greek word for struggling, agonizomai, is actually the word for agony. That doesn't sound very appealing. I want you to tell you about the agony of being a pastor. It would be a lot better if you said, I want to tell you about the joy of being a pastor or the challenge of being a pastor. Can you imagine Northwest Baptist Seminary advertising its programs and its training for ministry by saying, come and train with us and be a pastor. It's agony. So a couple of weeks ago, I looked up the statement for Northwest Baptist Seminary. Here's what it says. We equip and empower followers of Jesus Christ for joyful service, skilled ministry and leadership who are passionate about raising up competent pastors, missionaries, chaplains, lay leaders who love God and who know the pulse of the people and the cultures they serve. The word agony actually comes from the, the idea and the picture of a gathering. And then athletic competition. It means you strive for something involved. And then the energy that you're willing to expend in, in something to really make it happen. Think of athletes training for the Olympic Games. You see them every, putting every ounce of energy and strength into what they do. Why do they put themselves through this regimen of training and effort? The answer is passion. We heard from Scott Bailey at the camp, Quanters this morning. Why do directors and staff and counselors put themselves into the energy for camp? Because of passion. Passion to see young people come to know Christ. Come to see that there's more to life than simply this world. So Paul in this passage gives us what I would call the profile of an authentic pastor. 
It's built on the basis of scripture. Two of them are in Thessalonians. Two of them come from other scriptures. So I'll start outside Thessalonians, then come back into it in a moment. The first picture, the profile of an authentic pastor, he describes himself as a spiritual midwife, coaching people as they give birth and are formed into Christ. Comes in Galatians 4.19. My dear children, for whom I am in the pains of childbirth until Christ is morphed, formed in you. Morphed is a Greek word, but it's a word that Paul is very fond of. The word morphe means change from the inside out. And the pastor, says Paul, is a spiritual midwife who seeks to help us being changed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Paul likes this word. He uses it again and again. Very fond of it. He teaches the scriptures not to give us information, but rather to bring about transformation and change in our lives. Passage in Romans 12, which many of you would know. Paul says, begins, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. That word, if it's on the screen, I'm not sure. That word is metaschema. And it's the opposite of metamorphosis. But rather, he says, be transformed, metamorphosis, by the renewing of your mind. And then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. Be good and pleasing and perfect. Second Corinthians. But we all, with unveiled faces, contemplate the Lord's glory. And we are being transformed, metamorphosis, into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is his spirit. Every time in a day and a week you open your Bible on your own, each time you hear the word from this pulpit, you need to ask yourself a question. How is this word morphing me, changing me, transforming me into the likeness of Christ. You should leave each Sunday morning with at least one truth, one idea that God wants to use to change your life Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. That's why I often ask you on a Sunday morning as we finished, what's your takeaway from this morning? That's the one idea that you have to take with you. So Paul sees himself as a spiritual midwife Helping Christ be morphed and formed, birthed in the lives of his churches. The second picture Paul uses to, to talk about being a pastor is that of a mother. We're into 1 Thessalonians now, verse 7. Instead, we were like young children among you, just as a nursing mother who cares for her children. Uh, just a very small technical issue. It is actually very hard to know what this verse is actually saying. There's a textual problem in it we cannot solve. Paul could be saying, we were like young children among you. Or he could be saying, we were gentle among you. The Greek words between a young child and gentle differ by only one letter. And the actual word used is not certain. But the picture is clear. It's not to confuse us. Paul comes, he says, like a nursing mother. And the unique task, obviously, of the nursing mother is to nurse her babies. That's why First Peter says to us, and so like newborn babes, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow into your salvation, now that you've tasted that the Lord is good. Each Sunday morning, you need to ask yourself, at the end of the worship and teaching, how was I fed this morning? What truth from God's word was like milk from a mother's breast? We're told in 2 Timothy chapter 3, the scripture has got four basic purposes. 
Number one is to teach us truth. To teach us the truth that God wants, to hear, wants us to hear in his word. Secondly, it is to reprove us, which means where we're going off course. Thirdly, it is to, to correct us, to get us back on course again. And fourthly, it says, it is to train us in righteousness. Train is the word for pediatrics. Because God gets us like little children. And his job is to help us to grow up into Christ. Each time we read the Bible on your own during the week, you listen to a message from this pulpit. Can I challenge you to think at least one of those four purposes should be happening to you all the time right now. One, where are you being taught truth? Secondly, where is God's word reproving you? Thirdly, where is it correcting you, getting back on track again? Where is it training you up, helping you to grow in righteousness? Because God gets all of us babies and little children, and his growth always is to bring us to maturity. We'll come back to that in a few minutes. Third picture. Paul changes the metaphor. He moves from the, the gentleness of a mother to the firmness of a father. Verses 11 12. For you know that we dealt with you as a father deals with his own children. Then he uses three words. Encouraging, comforting, urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Now, I think if we're honest, we would generally say that fathers often have a stricter way with their children than mothers. Isn't that true? You may not always have known the, the experience of those verbs, encouraging, comforting, urging. I recognize that. Allow Paul, please, to the latitude to make his point. Notice his goal, to live lives worthy of God. So there's a challenging word to all fathers. Ask yourself this morning, how am I doing with my children? Encouraging, comforting, urging. We have three kids, three children, two boys and a girl. And when they were all married and eventually had their own children, one day I took a risk with them. And I asked them, so now that you're married and you have your own children, how did I do with you when you were kids? The answer was, Dad, you were always firm and fair. I'll take that as an okay. Just leave it there. Sometimes as a pastor, I had to meet with people, bring the scripture to their lives and address something that they were doing or going through, which is out of line with the scriptures. And I will tell you, I had to be fair and firm. I always remember the goal for all of us is to live lives worthy of God has called us into his kingdom and glory. The fourth picture, outside of Thessalonians, but we draw it in, is the protection of, our protection of a shepherd. Um, many of you may have had in your bedrooms or Maybe you have for your children in their bedrooms this morning. The picture of that, you know that picture of a well-groomed Jesus, manicured, his beard is perfect, carrying a cute, cuddly little lamb. Did I get that one? Something like that. Can I say to you this morning, you need to abandon that idea from your minds. The life of the shepherd was not filled with cute cuddly little white lambs. But there are large, heavy sheep who were valuable. And what they needed more than anything was protection. 
protection. In Acts chapter 20, Paul spent three years in Ephesus teaching the church, longest time he spent in any city. And when he comes to the end of his three years, he's down in the dark, getting on a boat. He's ready to leave. And the elders, the leaders of the Ephesian church are there and gathered around them, saying goodbye, maybe praying for him, I'm sure. And he challenges the Ephesian leaders of the church, you know, we have to take over the task of leadership. And this is what he says to them. Guard yourselves and all the flock of God over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Guard yourselves, watch out for yourselves, watch for your own life. But then he says, you guard the flock of God over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. That's a role and a job that I believe pastors have to take very seriously today. We are the doorkeepers of the church, guardians of the flock of God. That may mean theologically, as all kind of teaching wanders into a city like Victoria. Our job is to guard the church. You see, false teaching may not always be wrong, may not be all wrong, sorry. False teaching is not usually all wrong. That would make it easy to spot. Some of it is right. Some of it tickles people's ears. They get hooked by it and they start to wander off down the yellow brick road. Pastors need the theological skill to know that and to recognize that. And they have to guard the flock of God, keep them on the right path. Sometimes I was not very popular as I stood against something. But my job was to protect the sheep in my care. Sometimes you have to guard the flock of God morally as ethics slip and slide. And we easily become victims of what's called situational ethics. It seems that everything goes these days. Sometimes you have to guard the flock of God physically. Let me give you two brief stories from my pastoral life and history. Some years ago in the church where I was and here in Victoria, many of you would know, um, we had a large gathering on Sunday night, five, six hundred, mostly young people, university students, college students. It's called The Place. And in the fall, new students came to that and added to it. And one day, the, the police in Victoria, one fall, the police, local police called me and said, Tom, we've heard on the street that some pimps are coming to your evening service looking for new girls to turn out onto the streets to work. I never had a course in pastoral theology about that. What do you do with that? What's your job? Your job is to guard the flock of God. So one evening we went to the place and we spoke to them very openly and particularly to the girls about what was happening, who was coming, what they wanted them for and what they would end up doing if they followed them. Also for the next three or four weeks we had some law enforcement police attend our church normally and so we had the police at our church doors who knew some of these guys and we say to them, you, out. You're not welcome here for what you want. That's what we did. 
because our job was to guard the flock of God. For a number of years, I pastored the downtown church in Vancouver. And one day, a probation officer who was in our congregation told me that someone that he was working with and was getting out of prison and wanted to come to church. Well, we were open for people to come and worship with us, obviously, to come and hear the gospel. That's what we were in business for. But he went on and said to me, Tom, the reason he's been in prison is because he's a pedophile. And we had well over 100 children at our church on a Sunday morning. What do you do with that? How do you guard the flock of God? I met with a guy one day, along with the probation officer, and told him that he was welcome to come. He was welcome to come in the main sanctuary like this as he sat with his PO. He was welcome also to go across the, the way to a fellowship area, just like you have. And we had coffee after the service. He's welcome to come and stay with that. But because of the layout of the church, our, our children's ministry took place all in one floor, upstairs. And so I showed him the staircase up to that, and I said, your picture will be hanging at the bottom of these stairs. And every Sunday school teacher and staff person will know what you look like. And that whole area is out of bounds to you. You're welcome in our fellowship hall. You're welcome in our church. But not upstairs. You put one foot up there, and we will phone 911, and Vancouver PD will come, and they will be here in an instant, and they will pick you up. He agreed. That was fine. A couple of weeks went by, and everything was okay. Then a couple of weeks later, I didn't see him anymore, so I asked his probation officer where he was. And he said, well, sadly, he'd been picked up for something else. was back in Masquerie. He was back in prison again. I was struggling to do two things. I wanted him to know he was welcome to come and worship with, to hear the word of God. But I also had to guard the flock of God. That is not always easy. But sometimes that's what you have to do. And what's the goal of all of this? Comes to in Ephesians chapter 4. Great reading. So Christ gave us the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers. By the way, those last two words, pastors and teachers are not different. You have to, you have to put them together. Pastor teachers. And they're there to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach, we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will be no longer infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching by the cunning and the craftiness of people in deceitful scheming. Instead, Speaking the truth in love, it literally says, truthing in love. We will grow up to become in respect to the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. So your search committee is working hard to bring the name of a new lead pastor before you as a church. They seek someone with character, pure hands, clean hands and a pure heart, who will be like a spiritual midwife, desire to see Christ morphed in each one of you. Who will be like a mother to feed you with the milk of the word. Who will be like a father to encourage you each to live to the glory of God. 
and who will be like a shepherd who will guard the flock, who desires to see the whole body of Christ here at Central Baptist Church built up into maturity. That's the kind of pastor, authentic pastor, the search committee is praying about. That's the kind of person the board is praying about. But can I say to you this morning as a church, each of you, each household, every family, every couple, every single person must be joining together in prayer with them about that. This is perhaps the most important decision that will be made for the next eight to ten years or something in the life of Central Baptist Church. And it requires that each person, not just the search committee, not just the board, prays together for that person, an authentic person. Will you commit to that this morning? At your evening dinner, when you give thanks for the day, for your family, and for your meals, would you add that to the list? And we can only do this because each pastor, every one of us, stands under the banner of another pastor, another shepherd, the great shepherd, who is our example of all of this and so much more. His name is... Come on, his name is Jesus. And he is the one who has given his life for his sheep. That's us. So I invite you to stand. The worship team is going to come back. I bring this to close this morning with a, a very, very familiar reading. You know the picture and the words in here. We're going to sing a version of that. It might be new to some of you, so just think on it reflectively. Here's the picture of who we follow. The Lord is my shepherd. I like nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his namesake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We want to take a moment to thank you for listening and we invite you to join us on Sunday mornings in person or online. For more information about who we are and what's happening at the church, visit us online at centralbaptistchurch.ca. And it would mean so much to us if you took a moment to rate and review the podcast. It's one of the best ways you can help us spread the truth of the gospel online. Thanks for listening to the Central Baptist Church Victoria podcast.